0: Koinonia, Christian Fellowship, Communion with God and with fellow Christians. This is Koinonia. This is community. I am Tom Brown, and your host today is Vocab Balone. Welcome,
1: ladies and gentlemen, to Koinonia Radio. Tuesdays are the best days on Koinonia, if I must, if I may say so myself. The reason is because... Myself, Vocab Malone, takes the throne, I mean the chair, on the microphone. That's right. <laughs> in all seriousness, folks, this is Koinonia Radio, where we talk about fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. Come at you every day, Monday through Friday, 2 to 3 p.m. on 1360 Faith Talk, KPXQ. And Tom Brown lets me jump in the mix, which I severely enjoy. I like to talk about urban apologetics, That's the defense and explanation and clarification and vindication of Christian truth and the gospel, specifically in an urban, in a city, in a hood and type of environment. I love to talk about that, so we get into that type of stuff. Kind of a rare field, but needs to be discussed. And then I also like to talk about pop culture and how to relate theology and apologetics to that. Those are the two main things when I'm subbing in for Tom that I hit, however— I'm not a one-trick pony, ladies and gentlemen. And so today, we're going to jump into the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, specifically the prophets, specifically the minor prophets, and more specifically, Nahum. That's right, we're going to be talking about The Gospel According to Nahum. I'm going to be basing today's interview off a new book that just came out earlier this year called Severe Compassion, and I'm talking to the author, Gregory D. Cook. Welcome to Koinonia, Brother Greg. Thank you very much. Tell us real quick who you are and how you came to write this.
2: Well, I um, grew up loving the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. and especially the prophets, And I went to college and then straight to seminary. And then I got out and um, was a college pastor and then a solo pastor. Um, And somewhere in there, I started uh, a PhD program at Westminster Theological Seminary. And um, I finished that up in 2014. I did my dissertation on Nahum. And I took all of the technical Hebrew mumbo-jumbo, and uh, I wanted to write a book for people to understand the book of Nahum because I believe it's probably the least known, least taught, least studied, least preached book in the Bible. Why do you think that is? Um, it The main reason, I think, is that people typecast it as three chapters of judgment and vengeance against Assyria. And um, the destruction of an ancient empire is not all that uh, relevant today to a lot of people. And it also seems redundant because you can read Isaiah and find that God destroys wicked people. Um, And it's also a very difficult book and it's dense. Uh, And I think pastors think that the risk reward ratio Oh, uh, sorry about that. Let me turn that off. So Nahum, one of the
1: unheralded books, in a way, of the Old Testament, out of the Minor Prophets, the focus, gra- focuses.
2: focuses uh, foc- yeah.
1: Preached. Just a second. Focuses on uh, the destruction of Assyria. That's what the prophet Nahum right. was speaking about. And you're saying that because of the difficulties, pastors don't often get into it. However. Today, we are going to get into it. Give us a snapshot of what we're going to hear. Why do people need to
2: stick around for the other side of the break? Because every book of the Bible is important and relevant, or God wouldn't have put it in there. And so if we ignore any part of Scripture, uh, it's at our peril.
1: Oh, so you better listen to the next side of this Koinonia broadcast, or you'll be in perilous waters. Nah, but for real, you know what? Scripture is God's Word. God did not make any mistakes with what he included in there. And every book of the Bible is relevant because God is always relevant. He's eternal and his word is important. So we're going to get into the book of Nahum. You're going to see some things in there you've never seen. So if you're at home, I encourage you right now, crack open the book of Nahum. If you can stop what you're doing, you got it on your phone, bring it up real quick. Let's take a look at it together on It with Vocab.
0: This is Koinonia. This is Community. I am Tom Brown. Your host today, Vocab Malone. We'll let him get back to his duties in just a moment. Pastor Greg Laurie is going to be speaking at 1030 a.m. this Thursday morning at the University of Phoenix Stadium, and your church leaders are invited. Tell your pastor about this opportunity to hear Greg Laurie announce plans for the upcoming Harvest America Crusade, which is coming to Phoenix June of next year. Go online, rsvp.harvestamerica.com.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the music of Koinonia Radio. Tom Brown chose it, not me. I don't know if Bill likes it. Bill's the engineer. I never really see him nodding his head, to be honest, to the music. From where I come from, nodding your head would be kind of like a sign of approval of the music, you know, kind of bobbing up and down in sync, you know. I don't know where Bill comes from, but I don't really see him do much over there when it comes on. Maybe he's just heard it so much. I don't know. Anyways, we are on Koinonia today. I'm guest hosting Vocab, Vocab Malone. Check me out at VocabMalone.com if you want to hear some of my old rapping stuff. I don't really get to rap that much anymore these days, but that's what I refer to when I say where I come from. I can kind of transition from rap to apologetics, and that's some of what we're going to be talking about today. Specifically, apologetics in the book of Nahum and underappreciated book in the Old Testament, but very important. And I'm talking to the author of a book designed to help God's people love this book better. It's called Severe Compassion, The Gospel According to Nahum. And I'm talking to Gregory D. Cook. What does uh, the D stand for? In, in, Dean. What?
2: what? Dean. My, uh, oh, okay. my, right. It's my dad's middle name and his brother, like Dizzy Dean. So.
1: All right. I just figured I'd ask. Too. All right, the series editor, some, some of my more nerdy listeners may know. Ian, how do you say his last name? Ian? Do good. Ian Duguid. It is pronounced that do- way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Ian Duguid, do you know his middle initial? It's M. I wonder what that is. Sorry. That's... Can't <laughs> All right. Anyways, uh, that's trivial, isn't it? All right. So give us an introduction to the book of Nahum. What is it about? You mentioned a little bit. Let's get a little more detail. When is this written? What do we know about the author? What's going on? Tell us about the book of Nahum.
2: Uh, We know almost nothing about Nahum. We know uh, he was from a town called Elkosh, but we don't know where that is. So um, as far as biography, we've got nothing to go on. The book was written before the fall of Nineveh, which happened in 612 BC. Um, and it's certain that the book was written between 660 and 612. Uh, and I think it was written in 639 BC. Um, so the dates the dates set. Uh, and then Nineveh was uh, for the last 100 years of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh was the capital. Uh, and people know it from the story of Jonah and from Genesis 10. And the book of Nahum prophesies the destruction of Nineveh. Uh, and my my chief contention is that it's not dis- it's not prophesying the destruction of the common Assyrian people. Uh, it's pers- it's prophesying the destruction of the uh, the spiritual powers and the political powers that held people in bondage through Assyria. All right, so. You're saying—so this is—does
1: this come out of your Ph.D. work on the book?
2: Yeah, it does. I mean, I I spent an intense amount of time looking at the Hebrew and doing all that, uh, and there were numerous problems that people haven't known what to do with, and I came to the conclusion that the book was being overly simplified and misread. Uh, And as I took my one theory of what it was talking about, a lot of those problems came clear— but I also think that what I have to say is fairly plain if you just read it in English uh, and just you take off the lens of God's just mad at the Assyrians and, and read it for what it says. I think, I think what I'm arguing is straightforward. So, Greg Cook, your, your new book, The Gospel According to Nahum,
1: it's part of a series called... Um, well, it's, it's a series called The Gospel According to the Old Testament. What's the design of that series, and how does your book fit within that framework that PNR Publishing is doing?
2: Well, in Luke 24, when Jesus is raised from the dead, and he speaks to uh, the people on the road to Emmaus, and then later when he appears to the disciples, uh, that's the best place where the Bible teaches this, but it also teaches it elsewhere— Jesus says explicitly that the whole Old Testament prophesied about him. So the gospel according to the Old Testament is taking specific past portions of the Old Testament and uh, talking specifically about how they point to Christ. Uh, And so um, I wanted to talk about how Nahum actually proclaims the gospel and how Jesus' birth and death and, and redemption work is prophesied in the book and fulfilled in the New Testament. All right, we're probably going to revisit this,
1: but since you just said it now, I want to give people a little bit of an idea of how that might be done. So, Greg, let me ask you, what's an example of something that you saw in Nahum, this Old Testament prophetic book, that points in some way to the New Testament or to Jesus Christ, his person and work? What's something in Nahum that points to Christ?
2: Well, the thing that most fascinated me with the book and got me started is the last two verses prophesy the destruction of the king of Assyria, and I read those verses, and it seemed to me a clear prophecy of Satan destroy of sorry of Jesus destroying Satan through His work on the cross, and so in the end of the end of. Uh, Nahum 3:18 and 19 I think is a clear prophecy of Jesus destruction power. Let me of read Satan's those. Power. Let me read those and let me let you exegete it. So
1: everyone this is God's word. Nahum chapter 3 verses 18 and 19. If you've never read the book before here's a taste. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria, your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? Now, what would have the hearers heard, and what are you saying now in light of the New Testament we can hear?
2: Well, Assyria, what, what the hearers would have heard is Assyria had been an unstoppable military machine for a hundred years no no nation could stand up against them and they were cruel beyond measure give us Um, an
1: example of that i've
2: heard about some of this how were the assyrians cruel uh they would conquer a nation uh and then they would impose impossible tribute on the nation what is tribute what
1: is tribute upon a nation
2: tribute is gold silver slaves you have to make payments it's extortion payments on a global scale okay uh and those payments were so severe that a country couldn't afford to make them and still survive very well. Uh, and then when that became an economic impossibility, they would default on the payments and Assyria would come in and clean house. Uh, and they were just brutal. If, if you read ancient Assyrian documents translated in English, they're available on the internet. Um, the, the kings boasted about all sorts of flaying people alive. and What is flaying
1: it. someone alive? What is that? We don't hear that word every day. <laughs>
2: well, you take somebody who's still alive and you cut their skin and you pull it off. Um, so you're looking to create as much pain and shame as possible at the same time uh, to say you don't mess with the Assyrians. So how long did the Assyrians have this kind of empire? Well, the Assyrian empire stretched for at least 1,300 years, Um, but particularly in the last 150 years, so say from tiglath pileser 740 BC to uh, 627 BC when Ashurbanipal died, uh, the area around Israel was under total subjection to Assyria.
1: All right, so you just mentioned Israel. Most people understand in general where Israel is in the modern-day Middle East. Where is Assyria in the modern-day Middle East? I'm trying to give people a context, some touch points when we hear about this.
2: Well, what everybody knows is Iraq, and Iraq is essentially ancient Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. The northern portion was Assyria. The southern portion was Babylon. So north Iraq
1: was Assyria. Mm -hmm. Assyria stretched into some other modern-day countries, though, didn't it? Isn't there something called the Assyrian Triangle?
2: Right. And I mean, it just generally getting idea that the Iraqi city of Mosul is Mm -hmm. essentially Nineveh. Okay. So Assyria expanded greatly um, and dominated that part of the world for a hundred years. So
1: you talked about the cruelness. Of the Syrians, and then we talked about these verses eighteen and nineteen. What was Yahweh saying through his prophet Nahum to not only the Israelites but also to the Assyrians? What was he saying to them?
2: Well, he's saying that the that the that their power is broken. You you have a picture of the Assyrian king, and his his arm is shattered. Is basically what he's saying that that he's throughout the book that this male figure is incapacitated and incapable of doing anything. Um, and so his power is broken. and what you see in those verses is that his people leave and they don't obey him. Uh, and when in 319, what you said about who has not felt your endless cruelty, that's a that's to me, that's a prophecy of Satan and Satan's ultimate destruction, that we live in a world that's dominated by uh, an evil dictator, much worse than anything Assyria ever produced. And so the destruction of that evil power, and, and the point at the cross when Jesus broke it and then the ultimate point when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire will be an um, event of great rejoicing for all of us who have suffered.
1: Is it fair to say that's sort of the ultimate fulfillment of these passages in Nahum?
2: Right. I believe it was fulfilled in the 7th century BC and it was fulfilled at the cross and it's still to be fulfilled in a greater measure um, when when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Can you talk about that first fulfillment? Because I think it's helpful for
1: people to see uh, when God says something that's going to happen. And so when we have sort of what might be more minor fulfillment, we can trust him that the final fulfillment of the same prophecy is also going to come to pass. Talk about that first fulfillment in history that we're aware of.
2: Well, I I believe that Nahum prophesied in 639. Okay. um, And that's at a point where it would have been inconceivable to anybody that the Assyrian Empire could diminish anytime soon. So this isn't reading the tea leaves. Assyria is strong,
1: and yet Nahum, from this tiny little country, Israel, is prophesying that they will fall. When we come back on the other side of the break, Greg, I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about the details of the destruction of the Assyrian Empire, as well as some other key things in this book that you've written about the book of Nahum. So again, today on Quinonia, we're looking at the Old Testament. The book of Nahum got a lot of gems in it. My guest today, Greg Cook, has written a book called The Gospel According to Nahum. Severe Compassion is the book's title. And it goes through the tre- three chapters of Nahum and brings out some things. And I would say this book is a great teaching help if you're teaching through the book of Nahum. You could also use it for personal devotion. And I'd love to see, of course pastors use it for preaching through the book of Nahum. I think it'll bless you and encourage you, severe compassion. We come back, vocab alone, talking to the author of the book, Greg Cook. Don't go anywhere.
0: Good afternoon, beloved. Thank you for joining us for Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I am Tom Brown, vocab coming up in just a few seconds. Shonda Pierce, the Happily Laughter After Tour with special guest, Karen Williams is coming to Highlands Church next week on October 13th. You can get your tickets right now. Group rates and reserve seating available, faithtalk1360.com. Now, here's more Koinonia.
1: Welcome. This is Koinonia Radio. And even though Koinonia is a Greek word, today we're in the Hebrew. That's right. I'm talking to a man who got into the Hebrew text from a key book from one of the Hebrew prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. That's the book of Nahum. Now, we say Nahum in English usually. What's a more accurate Hebraic-sounding pronunciation of the prophet's name, Greg Cook?
2: Well, the um, the H sound is actually a kh- Yeah. Like if you've heard the mm-hmm. chayim, yeah. if you've heard a Jewish person say chayim. That's the uh, that's the middle syllable, so it'd be more something like Nahum, Nahum, but, but Nahum. I have trouble saying that. I don't speak Hebrew very well, so I try not to in public.
1: I figured uh, I'd ask. I'd like to see the next Bible study. One of our listeners is like, "Guys, I was I was doing um uh, devotions in the book of Nahum, and <laughs> see how it goes over." Anyway, so uh, we're talking about how a person can see Christ and New Testament ideas in the book of Nahum and so far we've got some background from the book of Nahum and as part of the background you're saying that Nahum is prophesying the Assyrian Empire's destruction which is a mighty powerful empire nobody could foreseen that this was going to happen when he's prophesying but yet it did come to pass and so I've been asking the author of the book on Nahum called Severe Compassion, Greg Cook, I've been asking him tell me about this fulfillment of prophecy when the Assyrian Empire was destroyed just like Yahweh said it would be. Tell us about that part of the fulfillment. When did the Assyrian Empire collapse, and by whom?
2: Well, in um, in 639, it's a date i mentioned, Ashurbanipal was king, and he had been king for uh, 25 years or so. Um, and he had just completed a major Uh, campaign and victory. And then something really weird happens in Assyrian history, and that's, it goes silent, and there's no record of uh, the Assyrian Empire sending out its soldiers after that. Uh, And I see that as a fulfillment of the words of Nahum. And and if you read the book carefully, what's prophesied is not like an obliteration, military obliteration as much as incapacitation. Um, it talks about him as dry stubble cut off and, and uses language like that. And what you read in Nahum 319, where the king of Assyria's power is broken. And that matches exactly Assyrian history, where une- unexplainably, nobody has an answer for why it happened. The Assyrian empire just went dormant. And then Ashurbanipal died in 627, uh, and the successors after him were incompetent. And the empire basically imploded. And so from 639, when it was the largest empire the world had ever seen, to 612, uh, everything went up in smoke, literally. Uh, And the Assyrian Empire completely disappeared from the face of the earth.
1: So it wasn't really a military conquering power? I mean, who kind of filled the void after the Assyrian Empire?
2: Well, what happened was the Assyrian Empire rotted out. And my theory is that it took a while for people to figure it out. And then in 612, Nebuchadnezzar, who wasn't king of Babylon yet, he was a general. His father was ruling in Babylon. In 612, Nebuchadnezzar led a coalition army against Nineveh and destroyed it. Okay. Uh, And so everything that's prophesied in the Bible about the rise of Babylon, God did that too. And so he incapacitated Assyria. He empowered Babylon, and Babylon came and wiped Assyria out. Now, and neither, neither of those events were foreseeable in 639.
1: People probably have heard of Nineveh and Assyria because they are maybe more familiar with the book of Jonah. How does the book of Jonah relate to the book that you wrote a book on, Nahum? How do those two books relate?
2: Well... I think both books are typecast unfairly. Both books are simplified. Um, and scholars treat Nahum as God's mean, nasty side, and Jonah as God's nice, compassionate side. Um, and there's a lot more going on in both books. And if you, if you read Jonah carefully and you put it in the context of uh, the rest of the Bible, I think the conclusion you have to come to is Jonah was so angry about going to Nineveh because he understood that he was about to awaken the Assyrian Empire, which was going to come and destroy his homeland. Jonah was not a southern prophet, he was a northern prophet from Israel. And Assyrian 722 completely obliterated the northern kingdom of Israel, and there's evidence in the Bible that Jonah understood that. Um, so I think Jonah gets an unfair uh, rap in, in pulpits because we think that he's just not, he's not compassionate enough. And I think he understood what, he was, what God was sending him to do. Um,
1: the book of Jonah has, in a way, a missiological aspect to it, at least from my reading, meaning Jonah is going to another people to pr- warn them of God's wrath and giving them a chance to repent. What do you think the book of Jonah, and maybe to a certain extent how Nahum ties in with it, what does that say about God's bigger plan for the other nations besides Israel, even being able to see that impulse in the Old Testament? Is there something there we should take away from?
2: Yeah, let me, for the sake of brevity, let me limit it to Assyria. Um, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says that God was going to raise up Assyria to be his instrument and then God was gonna destroy Assyria's power. And then in Isaiah 19, the last few verses of Isaiah 19, God prophesies that there will be a remnant that's redeemed from Assyria. Uh, and so I see both Jonah and Nahum as fulfillments of that idea. And what you read in Nahum 319, 3.18 and 3.19, where all the people are scattered is where I take issue with the common reading of Nahum, because if you read the book of Nahum carefully, the Assyrians are not destroyed. What's destroyed is the political and spiritual power over them. And so, I believe that Jonah went to preach to the Ninevites. God used that to bring redemption to them, but it also reversed the collapse of the Assyrian empire and initiated the process which Isaiah had prophesied, which was that God would use Assyria as an instrument to judge Israel. Um, But the purpose of all of that, as we read Jonah and Nahum in the light of Isaiah, is that the Assyrians would be among the people before the throne in Revelation, all tribes, people, nations, and languages. So that's what I want to ask you about, because
1: I'm no expert on this, and I'm curious as how far your studies took you in this. But I've been involved with a lot of um, ministry to Muslims. And when most people get involved to ministry to Muslims, a lot of times one of the allies and the people they work with and and, and end up learning about and fellowshipping with are Christians with a Middle Eastern background. And because of my experience in reaching out to Muslims, I've made a lot of friends with these Middle Eastern Christians. And a lot of them are ethnically... Assyrian, not Syrian, but just like the book of Nahum is about, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A-N. They're Assyrians. And I can put on two hands, brothers and sisters, who are ethnically Assyrian, who uh, most of them live here in the United States, and they do a lot of apologetics and reaching out to Muslims. And uh, their people, by and large, self-identify as Christians. Now, there's another issue about the Eastern Orthodoxy aspect and the evangelical and the Pentecostal aspect within modern-day Assyrians. But can you talk a little bit about what you know about modern-day Assyrians as a people and their relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ?
2: Well, based on what you said, you, you have more experience than I do. Um, with that, but I also know the f- faithfulness of God's scripture. And as I said, if you read Jonah and Nahum and Isaiah together, God is clear that His purpose is for the redemption of Assyrian people specifically. And I think that's one of the um, ways that He goes out specifically to talk about. In, in Isaiah, He also talks about the Egyptians, and as you know, yeah. Much of the early church came out of Egypt, uh, and God's Word is faithful, and it will always come to pass. And and what you described, um, I can confirm to a smaller degree, Mm -hmm. and I would say it's just a living reality of a promise given through Jonah, Nahum, and Isaiah, that God's Word would be fulfilled, just like we see that God has managed to keep uh, the Jews through millennia of persecution as a distinct people, we see Assyrians preserved, delivered from a political evil and religious evil, and delivered to worship Christ.
1: Yeah, if, if uh, people go back and study in the early 1900s, one of the worst genocides ever enacted on a people group was mainly done to the Assyrians by the Ottoman-Turkish-Islamic Empire— and we're talking millions upon millions. And, in fact, the term genocide, which means wiping out a whole people group, was coined because of the atrocities that happened in the early 1900s against the Assyrians. And part of the reason was their identification as Christians. And now and today, there's sort of a Assyrian diaspora, and there's Assyrians in California, especially especially San Jose, and also a number in Chicago. Those are the two main places in the United States that I've been able to see. There's a sizable Assyrian population, and there's to a certain extent here in Phoenix. And I remember one brother was speaking about the Bible's relationship to Assyria, and when he started speaking about the book of Jonah, he spoke about it with a different type of uh, level and depth and passion and understanding because he saw that as Yahweh even thousands of years before reaching out to his ancestors to invite them in to worship God. It was a beautiful thing to see. Um what are some of the passages where you could see God's compassion for Assyria? Do you have any of those off the top of your head? If not, that's okay. I know it's kind of a quick question. Or
2: maybe paraphrases. You mean in Nahum or in the Bible? In the Bible That's in a, general. Well, I think the strongest one is is in the end of Isaiah 19 where, where Isaiah says there will be a highway between Egypt and Assyria and Israel and that yeah. there will be a fellowship between the three peoples.
1: That's a beautiful, beautiful passage. And uh, I've also met a lot of Egyptian brothers and sisters and I can attest to that. So, Greg, when we come back... Can you help people understand some of the apologetic issues related to this book of Nahum? I will do my best. That's what we're going to do we come back. we got one more big segment. Do not go anywhere. I'm talking to Gray Cook, author of a book on Nahum called Severe Compassion. I'm Vocabalone.
0: Don't go anywhere. Discover your role in the rebuilding of a broken nation with the Kingdom Citizen Collection. The solution to our nation's problems and unrest isn't out of reach. The solution is here. And each one of us, as Kingdom citizens, has a vital role to play. Go online now, faithtalk1360.com. You can purchase yours from Focus on the Family, featuring Dr. Tony Evans, Kingdom Citizen. This is Koinonia. This is Community. I am Tom Brown. And your host today is none other than Mr. Vocab Malone. Yeah, yeah, y'all. This is Vocab Malone.
1: Live on Koinonia Radio today, I'm talking to the author of a brand new book that came out earlier this year called Severe Compassion, The Gospel According to Nahum. Nahum's an Old Testament book, one of the minor prophets. And sometimes it's not that, it's not that, studied maybe as it should be that's what we're saying here today and we're trying to give people a taste of it to show them that god's word is valuable and this is no exception the book of nahum and in this last segment we're talking about apologetics in nahum so the big one is fulfilled prophecy uh it's one of the apologetic issues and let me read from nahum 114 and then greg you tell me how this is apologetic in nature the lord has issued a command concerning you Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image. From the house of your gods, I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible.
2: How is that fulfilled? Well, um, most people wouldn't know this, but before Nineveh was excavated, um, biblical scholars who didn't treat the Bible as truth uh, believed that the Bible Basically, exaggerated or made up Assyria. Um, and what you see in 114 is a promise that um, Assyrian power, and you, and you see in the verse it has to do with political and religious power would be destroyed. And he talks about making your grave for your vile. A man named Aus, Aus, um, Henry Austin Laird. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Austin Henry Layard. Um, excavated Nineveh in roughly 1850, yeah. and, and people didn't even know where it was. It was one of the greatest cities the ancient world had ever seen, and it was so completely destroyed. So that's, Archaeologists that's in find a way, part of
1: a fulfillment. The fact is this great ancient city can, be so, can become so obscure that it seems, in a way, a partially a fulfillment of what Yahweh is saying in the Book of Nahum. So he excavates it, and then what?
2: Well, and then they realized that it exactly matches what the Scripture said, okay. and that the city was beyond anything anyone could fathom. Uh, and it just boggles the mind that a, a nation that great could be destroyed. And like you said, we had an Assyrian dispersion, and God managed to keep the people, despite the obliteration of the power structures, mm-hmm. He managed to keep the people as, a, as an identity
1: and that's and somewhat he, rare. Yeah. That's somewhat rare, isn't it, for a people to lose their homeland and yet still have some ethnic identity? What other people groups besides the Jews can we really say that about? I, I mean, I'm not—are there, are there others that you know of besides the Assyrians?
2: I, no, I can't think of any, especially if you're going back 2,600 years.
1: Yeah, see, that's amazing. I mean, I don't know. I mean, God does what he's going to do, but it seems as if there's this— other special place, for lack of a better word. Now, you're not saying this is me. You can comment on it if you want. For the Assyrians in in God's heart. It, it, like, even with all their cruelty in the past and all these things, it seems as if there is. Like, they are getting attention. You know what I mean? And you have these specific verses, like you mentioned in Isaiah 19. I don't know what it is, but it's really a beautiful thing, again, when I meet modern-day Assyrian brothers and sisters and talk to them and think, these are descendants of people who conquered God's uh, chosen people at the time. These are descendants of people who were known for cruelty and wickedness. These are descendants of people who were prophesied against, and now here they are with me singing praises to God. And here's what's so crazy, too. By and large, the Assyrian Christians I know, they speak like a Neo-Aramaic, which is kind of cool, and some of their sometimes they even do some of their liturgy in it. And so they have a language that is somewhat close to— I, my understanding is to some of the ways uh, Jesus would have spoken I and uh, I don't know it's kind of neat do you have any comments on any of that I don't know if you know much about that stuff as well but any comments before we return to the next apologetic point Greg Cook
2: well I would completely agree in in Jonah 3 3 it's, it's not translated in most Bibles because people don't know what to do with it but in Jonah 3 3 literally in the Hebrew it says Nineveh was a, a great city to God mm-hmm. Um. And the idea is this was one of the most wicked cities out there, and it was a non-Israelite city, and it gets prominent mention in Genesis 10, and then it gets two entire books devoted to it. I think it's clear that God had a special redemptive purpose for the Assyrians that you don't see… In the same way for other peoples,
1: right? Then one other thing. Sometimes uh, people will talk about Yahweh as like a tribal deity, an ethnic deity, specifically for this people group, and they kind of really uh, humanize, nationalize it down to that level. But I just want to reiterate: What does Yahweh's attention to the Assyrians show about God's attention towards um, non-Israelites? I mean, does it what what does it remind us of? When we see God taking an interest in a non-Israelite people, what does it remind us? And maybe what does it point us to, Greg, as
2: well? Well, well, I have a Reformed understanding of salvation. I I think you do too. And Mm -hmm. and as you trace it through Romans 9 and then the passages in Revelation, God's electing love is not contingent upon uh, people's behavior. And God, like with the Apostle Paul, he, he likes to take the worst of all and make them a trophy of redemption.
1: I got some people on Periscope commenting. One guy says it points to the expansion and reality of the new covenant.
2: Yeah, I would completely agree.
1: All right, the author agrees, man. We got people on Periscope. Who is that? uh, Avi Melesh, 777? Uh, Periscope, people can kind of listen live as we're doing this. If you guys have a question for Greg, I'll try to sneak it in. We'll see. All right, so what's an apologetic issue in Nahum? What's an issue of contention or something that we could defend or talk about, Greg? from the book of Nahum. Give me one.
2: Well, uh, there's there's a strange structure in the Hebrew, and I'm, I'll try not to bore anybody. If, if you've read Psalm 119, you know how your English Bibles will put these little Hebrew letters mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. in there. Like an acrostic?
2: Called, yeah, it's called an acrostic. And what Nahum does in the beginning of his book is he gives us half an acrostic, but the half that he gives us is all messed up. Um, and so people took that for decades and said, here's evidence that the Bible text is corrupt because nobody would write an acrostic like this. Um, okay, okay, let, have, me, let, let me stop. Uh, here. Th- uh,
1: th- let me try to summarize what you're saying. Okay. An acrostic is where in, the, in any language, but in this case Hebrew, the beginnings of lines begin with the same letters. And as you go through... And Psalm 119 is an example in Scripture of where you might see that. You're saying Nahum has an acrostic aspect to it, but it, it's messed up. And so some scholars have alleged, well, then the text of the book must have got messed up because nobody would write an acrostic the way we have it preserved. Is that a fair summary of what you're trying to say?
2: Yeah, let me correct right. one thing, and that's—an <laughs> an acrostic is a progression from, like, A to B to C to yeah, D. Yeah, yeah, And And— um, and so, the theory was Nahum originally wrote one that was A, B, C, D, and it's so mumble-jumble now that it's evidence that bad things have happened. Uh, and so, my argument, what, I, what I've done is, I went in, and it, this is in the book and it's spelled out in English, you don't need to know Hebrew, uh, but the, the beginning verses, the structure of the beginning verses of Nahum 1, match the structure of Psalm 9 and so I argued, I think uh, convincingly because I'm pretty proud of myself, that uh, that Nahum is declaring his book to be a, a fulfillment of Psalm 9. And so in in the book of Nahum, numerous places people argue that the text has been corrupted but there's no evidence, The Dead Sea Scrolls are almost exact to what we had from 1200 years later. Let me give people, can I give
1: people real quick an example of modern day acrostic? This is from a group called Black Alicia. Some of you have heard this, Alphabet Aerobics. Artificial amateurs aren't all amazing, analytically I assault, animate things, broken Bear beakers bounded by the bomb, beat buildings are broken, basically I'm bombarding, casually create catastrophes, casualties, cancelling cats, got the canopies collapsing, detonate a dime of dank, daily do window, demonstrations on, da-da, on the down low. So kind of like that, is that a, an, ac- an acrostic? Yeah, it's a little different from <laughs> what Nahum did, but kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm talking to Greg Cook, author of a book on Nahum called Severe Compassion, and he's breaking down some of the apologetic issues in the book of Nahum. Sorry for that interruption. Continue on.
2: Oh, that's fine. Um, The other thing that, that I continually go back to is people who study Hebrew poetry say that Nahum as a poet was brilliant. Okay. Uh, and the, th- the thing I keep coming back to is how can you say that this book is so corrupted when you think the poetry is so amazing? It's like saying Shakespeare was a great poet, but it, what we have today is nothing wh- like what Shakespeare actually wrote
1: mm-hmm. okay. know,
2: because the texts have been corrupted. So um, lots of that in the book, but hopefully in a more interesting form than normal textual criticism. All right. So
1: uh, real quick. While we're on this point, I just want to try to describe and explain everything to everybody as we go. What is textual criticism? Because I have some people uh, on Periscope asking questions, and some of them I think might be helped if we explain a little bit about textual criticism, what it is in the first place. So what is, when we talk about the text of Nahum and textual corruption, what exactly were you actually talking about here, Greg Cook?
2: Well, Nahum, uh, in one one it says it's a book, and so we believe that he, Nahum actually wrote it. Okay, so, so a complete finalized product of some writing. Okay. Right. So, unlike, say, what Elijah said, Nahum wrote something down. Okay. So, he did that, you know, 639 BC. Um, and until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the earliest copies we had were from around 1000 AD.
1: Okay, so so, 1,000 years approximately after the time of Christ are, are our earliest copies of Nahum. But then we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, and now what are our earliest copies?
2: Well, now we're 200 years before Christ. And so before the Dead Sea Scrolls happened, everyone figured, well, we've had 1,600 years for the text to get messed up as it passed from one person to another. They find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they find something that's essentially verbatim. And that argument goes out the window. Yes!
1: Textual preservation for the win. <laughs> Eating other editors with each and every energetic epileptic episode, elevated etiquette, furious, fat, fabulous, fantastic, flurries of funk, felt, feeding the fanatics, gif got. Great Global Goods Gone Glorious, Getting Godly in His Game with the Glorious. <laughs> All right, we got one more segment left. When we come, I'm going to give Greg Cook, author of Se- Severe Compassion, a, it's a book on Nahum, a chance to kind of summarize what we've talked about today and make a final plug to say you should buy this book. <laughs> Welcome back to Coin Your Radio. My name is Vocab Malone. I love doing this. Thank you so much, KPXQ and Tom Brown, for letting me sit in every now and then. Today I'm talking to Greg Cook. We've been hearing from him. He's the author of a new book called Severe Compassion. It's a commentary, very practical. It's got reflection questions in it and everything on the book of Nahum. So if you want to understand more of the Bible, more of the Old Testament, or more of that prophetic literature there, this is a book you want to get. Tell people about how they can get this book and maybe some of the details, because you got some exciting news to announce in relationship to how people can read or listen or hear this book. Tell us, Greg Cook.
2: Well, it's available um, in print, an ebook, Kindle. It's also available in audio, uh, and they can get it just about anywhere on the internet that sells books: Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, iTunes. Um, Christian Audio produced the audiobook and david cochran heath who's an excellent narrator did the narration and for the next month or so christian audio will be selling it for five dollars uh and that's so that if the cheapest way you want to get it um would be an audio version i i particularly like audio so we i arranged that with them and
1: it's in a series called the gospel according to the old testament Uh, To the people on Periscope, I'm trying to show them my screen, uh, which shows the Kindle version of it. But I think it's great that people can pick it up and they can actually listen to it. So as a final plug, what is the big idea of your book, Greg Cook? What's the big idea there?
2: Well, the big idea is that Nahum has been considered redundant and unnecessary. And God would not have put it in the canon if it were redundant and unnecessary, and that it reveals the gospel of what Jesus came to do in a way that no other book does. And so you can't have a complete understanding of what Jesus did without knowing Nahum. What's
1: um, the big idea, and I know we've said this a few times, but one more time, what's the big idea of the book of Nahum?
2: The the big idea of the book of Nahum is the, the redemption of the Assyrians and God breaking the political and religious powers that kept them in slavery so that they would be free to worship christ so what you working on next anything
1: i see it looks like you do youth and college ministry got anything else coming up Greg cook
2: i'm uh working on a book of on jonah i'm hoping
1: oh
2: in makes, about a year and uh, i'm excited about that all
1: right that makes perfect sense so when you're done with that hit me up and i'd love to give our listeners a taste of that thanks for joining us
2: definitely do that